0: Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness, with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello and welcome everybody to episode 20 of our uh, podcast. My name is Ben Alderberg, coming to you from Auckland, New Zealand, and as always, uh, Emma Strutt from Queensland. I I started there because I believe you're not in Boona, but you're house-sitting, or you're still in Boona? Where are you at at the moment, Emma.
1: Upsetting north side of Brisbane.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we'll call it Brisbane. So uh, (laughs) welcome to the show as always, Emma. Um, Now, before we get going, uh, we have uh, promised that we will announce the winners of the uh, Vegan Living uh, book giveaway. And uh, we have two winners. One is Beth with the handle on Instagram, Eating Mindfully, um, who has been... uh, sharing a lot of really cool stuff with what she's been doing in terms of uh, uh, plastics, soft plastics, in terms of uh, reuse and recycling, etc. So, well done to you, Beth. We'll send you a message, get your details and get a book sent out to you. And uh, the handle Blanchard, Blanchard, not sure, um, uh, you put a really nice review. Thank you very much on Apple Podcast. Uh, probably about a week ago. Now, because we can't reach you, please reach us. So, whether it's through Facebook, uh, Instagram, or even an email directly to us, admin at thelentalintervention.org. Send us your details, and we can also get a book sent out to you. So, thank you very much for entering that competition. And uh, without further ado, Emma, straight into it. Uh, Who's our next guest?
1: All right, so today we're joined by James Wilson, who for 40 or so years was a typical Kiwi sheep and beef farmer eating a pretty standard diet. However, he's now living a whole food plant-based lifestyle after experiencing some personal health scares, and he's also written two books, so he's a very busy man, um, Plant Paradigm and Losing the Silver Spoon. He's a fascinating man with a fascinating story, so James, we'll bring you on. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. Now, James, uh, I have got a copy of your book in my hand. It's a, it's a nice, uh, I call it old school style pocket size book. Um, really nice to handle. Uh, fantastic book. And uh, we're talking about The Plump Paradigm, of course. And uh, yeah, to kick off, before we get straight into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. As, as Emma mentioned, a typical Kiwi sheep and beef farmer, thing. Um, Third, fourth generation farmer, I believe, in the top of the South Island. Is that correct? No, no, no. Uh, it, all but the last piece.
2: Um, <laughs> I, I was raised in in the Manawatu, in the North Island. Yes. And 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 farmed in that in that region, for most of my life, for a big chunk of my life anyway. And uh, it was a sheep and beef farm, and uh, I was an avid meat eater, and milk drinker. And raised my children, more or less, to eat meat at every meal, certainly at least twice a day, and uh, that's how I started life, and, and that carried on till, well, till some, something like twelve years ago. Oh, well, I gave up farming about twenty years ago, and uh, twelve years ago I became vegan.
0: Now, in the book, you mentioned that was it your father, or, or if not your father, perhaps his father. That's you know something about it's it's almost a duty to to farm you know uh-huh. whether it's providing wool for for the soldiers uniform or it's providing meat uh, or you know it's 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 that sort of sense of of pride isn't it to be to be a farmer
2: yes, yes I, I I grew up after the Second World War and and in my time in the early days my father, Kept saying that we were, it was a very, the most patriotic thing we could do in New Zealand was farm lots of sheep and beef and send it to Britain because they were pretty hungry. And then the, the Korean War came along, so that, that meant we had to produce wool for the soldiers. Yes, and it was a patriotic duty in those days. Now, as well, as I guess it made money.
0: And uh, yeah, of course. And um, tell us a little bit more about yourself in terms of, you know, were you active? I mean, our farmers are pretty active themselves, you know, very hands on, but. Would you have considered yourself to be healthy and and living quite a fulfilling life during that stage as oh, well? Absolutely,
2: mm. absolutely. I thought I thought health um, was, was was it was centred around meat and, and animal protein. That's what I believe. and um, and the, and, the, and I lived that way. In fact, in the other book that you just mentioned, Emma mentioned, there's a t- time in my life when I was I was desperately, desperately hungry. But I was convinced that if I didn't eat a little bit of meat every day, I'd, I'd probably uh, <laughs> cark it. But, mm. Which so, now i realise realised how foolish that was. But yes, well,
1: I, I mean, very, that's the message we get a lot, isn't it? It's fed to us by a lot of the um, different nutrition societies as well. So you're totally um, understandable in thinking that way.
2: Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a vast number of my friends still think that way.
0: So, you know, living life as a farmer day-to-day, you know, thinking, you know, well, you're living the life that that you believe is is the right, healthy way. And then you had a, I was going to say a, but actually two health scares.
2: Yes. The first one, I forget how long ago it was, but quite a a long time ago now, Mm. um, I suffered a pulmonary embolism and and went through a spectacularly memorable near-death experience and came out of it thinking that well that was going to, now I'm going to change my ways, not knowing what, way I, what ways i was going to change, but I thought I was going to change something and nothing happened at all. Really, I just went back to living the same way as I had. But the second one um, occurred when I was in the South Island. And, and when I came out of that one, luckily I survived both of them, which was extremely good luck. Um, but I also could put that down to the good health I had. When I came out of the second one, I was told that I was to be on warfarin and and to be on warfarin for the rest of my life and seeing one of my main occupations is is clearing predators and we feed rats warfarin to kill them i um i was very unhappy about going living on rat poison and 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 after a few months or weeks or months of this where i felt dreadfully unwell and bled every time i looked at something that might scratch me i um Resolved to give up warfarin, and, and was told by a multiple of people that I would die if I gave up warfarin. But I was, I was feeling so dreadful, I thought, "Well, give me anything a go." Uh, and um, then, at that very fortuitously, at that time, I heard a, an interview between Kim Hill on national radio and
0: Doctor Caldwell Esselstein.
2: Yeah, Esselstein is it? Yes, Esselstein. And uh, he was he was so convincing that by the end of the interview, I went through the kitchen and cleaned everything out of the cupboards and declared that was my life from now on. And uh, <laughs> that's how it happened.
0: Now, was it convincing because you were already at a crossroad with your health? You know, if you had heard that same conversation, that same interview, say, you know, what well, we don't know how many years, but say prior to your first pulmonary embolism would that have had the same impact?
2: None at all. None at all. No, in fact, quite a few people. I've bumped into quite a few people since hearing that interview, which was, I think, 12 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's quite a a number of them remembered it, but no one else got struck by it like I did. I I met, met, no, I have met one person who was struck by it. And it it was perfectly, the timing was immaculate because I was very worried I was going to die. And he Cleared Because I had been told that the warfarin was to thin my blood to deal with my damaged heart, um, I, I was convinced that I was in deep trouble. But then Cordwell thing pointed out that a plant-based whole food diet allows your, your, your vascular system to come right.
1: So you made the shift overnight. Um, tell me about the first couple of weeks. Was that tough for you or did you just, um, you know, the motivation was there so you found it easy?
2: I think it was fairly tough. I, um, Yes, yes, I've told a number of people since that if you're going to change, I I gave up smoking years ago, and I did that by cold turkey, ultimately. And I thought I thought that the only way I was going to deal with this problem was go cold turkey. (laughs) Excuse the expression. Mm. And, uh, and so yes, I think it was quite hard. And there were a number of interesting um, things that happened during that early period. There was an interesting one that happened maybe two months after I'd gone, gone vegan. When I, um, I was telling someone, no, I was telling my wife, that's right. I was telling my wife that my fingernails were going, were looking um, unwell. They were going crinkly and, and breaking. And I said to her, I think this is, um, I think we're, I'm not getting enough calcium this way. And another fortuitous thing happened that day. In the mail came a book from a friend of mine about going vegan. And I opened the parcel, opened the book, and it fell out open on the page about calcium. (laughs) And and it declared that when people give up milk, there is a period of time when you do become calcium deficient until your body gets ready to take calcium from plants and other materials rather than just straightforwardly from milk. And that, that was so lucky. So I just, I carried on what I was doing. And a month later, my nails were perfect
0: again. Amazing. I mean, we you can imagine, you know, especially if, to go, as you say, cold uh, turkey or tofee, or turfu <laughs> I don't know, whatever expression people use in, in this case. But um, I guess the difficulty is you're going from one way of living the way you know to eat, you know, meat, veg, or, you know, meat, starch and, and, and veg sort of approach on a plate. Yeah. And... The next day, it's sort of right. We're taking the meat off the plate. What are you replacing it with? Or are you, you know, what, how do you fill that gap? How do you not go hungry? So it's a very radical change for someone that's grown up the whole life, not just eating a particular way, but living a particular way. So, Absolutely. so how, how did, how did you, okay? So you heard a, a fascinating and, and real inspiring. Interview by Doctor Esselstein. Um, you know, lucky you had a good friend that that sent you a, a book that might have given you some tips. But how did you actually go about straight away implementing that change? Where did you look for, in terms of guidance?
2: Well, I well I um I, I read voraciously as soon as I'd heard it, Esselstein, <clears throat> and I read the China study to start with, and then I delved into authors like um, John McDougall and. Mm-hmm. And other, they don't come to me so easily now, anyway, I read a lot of books and I worked out for my own benefit that with, with plant-based whole food you, it doesn't matter how much you eat you're not going to get overweight with it and so I, I made myself eat an enormous amount, thinking the long as I ate enough, as long as I ate enough, there would be um, i'd get enough goodness out of it so I did eat enormous. Quantities of vegetables, yeah, and a reasonable mixture with beans and lentils and stuff as well, and uh, I certainly survived.
0: And apparently, you and your wife both lost a bit of weight, which was unexpected as well. Yeah, we
2: were both both slightly overweight. We were by that by the, we recognise now. We yeah. both lost about twenty percent of our live weight. Wow! Uh, over the first sort of three or four months, but that didn't hurt. That didn't concern us particularly. Although people, the non-believers said we were wasting away, but we've got <laughs> fabulous.
0: Of course they would, and and how did that? So whilst you're going through that change, how is your mindset around what you're actually doing as a farmer? You know, when when did that start coming into play?
2: Well, I hadn't. I wasn't farming in those days. That's good. Right. Okay. I'd, I'd, I'd sold the farm some some years prior, but I was still an avid meat eater. I was a fantastic customer at the local butchers and um, so, so i, I didn't it, i didn't have any conflict with the with the meat i was producing because i'm no longer producing meat right that would have made it a lot harder
0: do you think you if if you were still farming do you think how how you know have you ever thought about that sort of that whole what if scenario what if you were still a farmer do you think that might have uh sort of made the the the, the lifestyle change that you under underwent more difficult or perhaps you may have resisted going down that path you know have you ever thought about that
2: can i answer that in a slightly oblique way of course what i have discovered when i went when i went plant-based it was because of my health and nothing else yeah subsequently and the reason that i wrote the book i came to realize that there are three cornerstones to being vegan and Mm -hmm. the first one is human health the second one is um Uh, environmental damage caused by by growing and eating meat. And the third one is cruelty to animals. Now, as a farmer, I had no idea that we were being cruel to animals. I'd just been brought up to treat the animals the way everyone else had treated them. But now that I'm where I am now, I could never be a farmer now because the the cruelty we subject to animals is just horrific. And, and, And so I guess... If if I'd still been a if I'd still been farming and became vegan, I think within short order I would have probably sold the farm anyway, and given up farming. But I had never thought of that before. Now,
0: yeah, because yeah, you you do cover the the, the those three aspects. And in fact, I quite like how you actually in the book you actually say there's a fourth reason to being a vegan, and that is the joy, of of yeah. uh, the joy in being a vegan. Which I quite like that because it feels like. It's a sense of, you know, you're acting responsibly. You're acting responsibly towards your health. You're acting responsibly towards uh, other sentient beings, so the animals. Um, and, of course, as, as there's a lot of publicity going around this now and a lot of action being needed is, is the state of our, of our planet. So I quite like that you add that fourth component, um, which kind of sums up the three others. And it's not just you doing it because you have to, because it actually makes you feel good.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's no sense of me having to anymore. Um, there's a strange phenomenon now, whereas in the old days, if I was um, milking a cow or collecting hens' eggs or you know, cutting up some meat, I'd start salivating at the thought of eating it. Now, if someone hands me a bunch of spinach, I start salivating, which I would have never done in the past. <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to be a vegan.
0: Yes. So what? So what actually did inspire the book? plant. Oh, um,
2: well, I read so much about it. And I, and I was, I still failed to communicate adequately to so many of my friends as, as to the value of being vegan. Mm. And, um, and I sort of got fed up with it really then. And, uh, and for the three reasons, I think that farming's out of date now for a variety of reasons, including the ones that they're under threat from, what I call fake meat and fake milk, and and so that they, they don't recognise that there's a tsunami coming over the hill, and and I wanted to warn people about that. And I wanted to warn all my friends and anyone who read the book that there's a way of staying alive without resorting to pills and patients and and, and being fit and healthy. <coughs> and um and and like everyone else nowadays, I recognise that the damage being done to the unnecessarily to the environment. And that's not just the global warming and things, but the desperate destruction of the biodiversity in New Zealand, I think, equates to the Amazonian disaster, but on a smaller scale. 100%. I I wanted to publish a book (coughs) with the idea that I might throw it down on different people's dining tables and say, for God's sake, read this.
1: Mm -hmm. So Um, how's the reception been with all the friends so far? Well,
2: with my friends around here that have watched over the last 10-12 years they've now become quite benign to it so they sneak away and eat their own meat in their own place but they're quite happy to come and eat my food at my place and more and more uh, uh, preparing vegan dishes or at least dishes that I can eat the vegetable parts of of the meat when I go to their places whereas in the early days they they totally rejected that so I guess I'm willing and (laughs) And I must admit, on a good day, I look around and I see quite a long, large number of people who have changed. And I've had a number of quite a bit of correspondence from people who have read my book and have written and said, I've pushed them over the edge into into the world of being a vegan. So I'm quite comfortable with that.
0: Well, I think just impacting one person is a job done, you know. And so I think, you know, you're not going to expect to change everyone's sort of beliefs but (laughs) you know we need you know if we have more people like yourself writing more books speaking more about it uh you know compiling documentaries whatever the more the more podcasts like this as well the more awareness that's created the more people will eventually listen and i think it goes back to that interview you listened to by dr Esselstein. is you were already in a state of if i may use the word desperation Right, your health was was at a tipping point and that struck yeah. really well with you. You know, it's sort of here's here's hope. Whereas if you're super healthy, active, everything's fine, why change something that you don't see is broken? And I think that's that's the point. We just gotta keep getting that message out. Um and for those of the listeners that are interested in 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 purchasing this book, which I highly recommend. Super easy to do. We'll put a link in the show notes, but it's plantparadigm.com. Get on the website and you just click on the tab purchase and you get yourself a copy of this amazing book. Now in the book, um, I haven't gone through the whole book yet because I haven't had a chance, but there's one thing I really liked in there that puts a lot of perspective in terms of a lot of people that say, you know, why we need meat. And there's a, I guess, a clock. That uh, you' reference to that that depicts the past million years and shows at the beginning or near the beginning the invention of fire and how long it took before we had I guess spears and arrows and so on to hunt animals and also the relation with development of the brain etc and, and i haven't I've never seen that kind of perspective put depicted that way, but I think that you know you, you really choose some some really interesting angles to demonstrate why. You know we should be eating the way we we think we believe is the right way which is a whole food plant-based diet
2: thank you for that i put a i put months of work into trying to work out how i could um, in broadest terms it, it show, describe what is now shown as that clock face mm. and um whilst the details might be wholly um inaccurate the principle is is is, is absolutely right and um and it's, a, it's such a short span of our time on Earth, as humans, that we've actually been domesticating animals and eating meat. It's, um, it's, it's quite ridiculous to think we were born to do that. We have been, over the last 10,000 years, we definitely have evolved into animals that think we depend on meat. Mm. But, but there's, there's, a, there's so many plant-based um, whole food advocates nowadays, and we're all thriving. So it's a complete lie that we have to have meat and milk. Absolute lie.
0: Have you had much re- actual resistance from perhaps not just farming communities, but more, uh, you know, shall we say commercial entities or anything like that, having been a farmer yourself? Um, um, if you're allowed to answer that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I'm just trying to put into this perspective. Um, yes. I think an awful lot of industries uh, feel like they're under threat if, if veganism took hold. I mean, yeah. look at the vast amount of uh, fertilizer that's brought into the country and poured on the land. And so there's all sorts of companies that are dependent on the on the agricultural industry as we know it now that are are working very hard along with the farmers to preserve the status quo. But in a more immediate case, it it's, it staggers me how well. Twelve years ago, it was almost impossible to walk into a, a, a restaurant and ask for a vegan meal. They just didn't understand it. And even today, um, I have to, I have to, I try, I do my best to choose the restaurants I'm going to eat in if I'm going to eat out to get a decent uh, plant-based whole food meal. Sometimes I'm making a pretense of it, but it's, it's, it's not adequate. So, so I guess that the, the, even the restaurants are under threat. I think. To
0: change their ways. And a lot are changing. Um, you know, I think it's accelerating because, like you say, it's, it's you know, they're starting to catch up. Um, it's from a commercial sense, there's certainly money to be made. And I think that's why a lot, they don't necessarily understand the concept of veganism. You know, they'll call a dish vegan, but it'll still have cheese in it, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they're trying yeah. to play catch up because they don't want to be left behind yet. I think there's still <laughs> a bit more work to be to be done. But um, I just want to touch a little bit on the environmental side of things because having been a farmer yourself, um, you know, there's an incredible amount of, especially for New Zealand, uh, you know, we had Dr. Mike Joy, who's very active in talking about the, the state of our of, of our waterways. So our mm-hmm. rivers, our streams, our lakes, etc. Um, I attended a, uh, a really fascinating talk last week, where Dr. Mike Joy was there, but there was uh, a few other individuals from, um, uh, you know, that spoke about regenerative regenerative farming practices um, and, you know, versus the intensive farming that we have here in New Zealand, which is the the biggest problem when it comes to either the leaching of of nitrates and uh, phosphorus and so on into our waterways. Mm -hmm. Um, As a farm or as a past farmer yourself, what you know what do you think the biggest things are from a, an environmental point of view the impact and to add on to that do you think regenerative farming practices can solve that or do you think that's just a it's just a layer masking the the inevitable
2: Whoa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um where to start
2: well first of all Within my book, there is a there is some graphs produced by, not by me, but I had permission to use them, from a professor in Canada, Professor Smill, I think his name is. I haven't got it right in front of me. Anyway, those graphs are very, very indicative of one, um, of, the, of the, the fact that 10,000 years ago, the majority of vertebrates in the world were wild animals. Yes. And in a, in a tiny slither of the... The vertebrates were humans. Today, there is a vast number of humans by by live weight. There is a much much larger by live weight bunch of domesticated animals: cattle, sheep, um, horses, goats, camels, dogs, cats, and um, and a tiny sliver left of wild animals. So that the, the wild animals are being completely replaced by by domesticated animals.
0: I think it's about four percent wild animals. Four, yeah,
1: four percent yeah. wild, sixty percent livestock, and thirty six humans. Yeah. So not a good ratio. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, and, but the other point in there is, there's a graph which shows the natural carrying capacity of the earth, and that has declined over the last ten thousand years as we have cleared the jungle and bush and and Imposed domesticated animals, and everything above that line, which is I don't know, maybe phew, um, three quarters of it, or, or more, more probably of above the line, is all being produced through oil, the application of oil-based products or oil-driven machinery or whatever. And so that that those three quarters, call it three quarters for now, that three quarters above the line is totally unsustainable if we gave up using oil. And yet we're meant to be giving up using fossil fuels within 30 years. And so the idea of having livestock in any shape or form in the future is actually, I think, unthinkable. And so now we get to um, uh, regenerative agriculture. A lot of the farmers are talking about regenerative regenerative agriculture by using livestock to um, trample and graze land that has been shut up for a significant, significant amount of time. The interesting thing is that in the 1970s, I introduced a system of farming on my own farm. I decided to go organic as a farmer and I introduced a system which in those days we called sabbatical fallowing, which was regenerative farming by another name really. And, um, and so I, I think in some respects, without knowing the most recent research work on it, we were doing regenerative farming back then. And once again, it was the animals that were pugging the ground and, and co- being caused, and we were just dis- causing them distress because we were farming them still. And so a lot of the regenerative farming that's discussed these days is still using livestock in association with pastures to regenerate more... See um, carbon into the soil, and it is an effective way of getting carbon into the soil, but if you don't need meat, you don't need animals, and if you don't need animals, you can turn, I don't know, 80% of the land that's farmed today into into bush and left it, leaves the last 20% to grow a few veggies.
1: Yeah,
2: that's good
1: so point. Because can, from that farming. you
2: can detect that I'm not actually that enthusiastic about regenerative
1: farming <laughs> and it takes a lot of space doesn't it so if we're trying to rewild the earth and you know um, combat deforestation it's yeah it's a the band-aid kind of um, band-aid method in my in my opinion
2: well I, I I agree with you I think that the problem is that it's it's almost like a sop to the the existing livestock farmers do it this way and you'll feel better because that's certainly what I did when I was doing my sabbatical farming. This wonderful sense of of achievement of what I was doing, but it, it wasn't the right achievement because it, we were still usurping bushland and 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 swampland, what we call the swamp, but in fact wetland, um, and 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 growing animals on it. I don't think it's necessary.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of um, sort of feel good approaches, and and um, you know there's there's parts of I think. Uh, Rotorua and even Lake Taupo where certain farmers are being paid not to farm to help yeah. improve water quality but you know that's not sustainable because when you look at when you do the maths and you look at other regions that are you know just as or even more intense in terms of the, the farming there's no way you can afford that and and um, yeah I can't remember what the figures are but it's it's you know it'll be billions of dollars to 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 do that elsewhere so there, there's Absolutely. a lot of supposed solutions, but I feel a lot of them sometimes tend to be political, um, just to win a few extra votes, keep a few people happy, and you know. But you're not really addressing the roots of the problem.
2: No, I, I now live in, in Picton, and, and I look. I'm looking out now as I talk to you across to the, with the water to hills covered in bush. Mm. Now all that land was cleared and farmed as pasture land um, up until the late 1940s. And now it's all covered in beautiful bush. I know we've got problems in it, but but it, nonetheless, it's all reverted to bush. And and it's my claim that there's nowhere in New Zealand that wouldn't revert to wetlands and bush if we just walked away and left them. And and we would, as, as you say, to re, rewild the world, the country would be a very easy job. I don't know. I don't know about the economy. I'm sorry. I don't know about
0: the economy. Yeah, yeah well you know we'd have to change our dependence on <laughs> what we export and and what you know we generate income from but uh yeah dairy dairy and uh beef and, and lamb exports is certainly a, a big contributor to our economy so look we we won't we won't delve into something we we maybe don't not experts in but we know we know what's driving it so it's uh you know, we've we got to push from, from other aspects. And like you say, if we look at water quality, if we look at health issues um, and even ethical reasons, um, there's enough good yeah. reasons to, to change our behaviours.
2: Absolutely. I, I always hope that my book would trigger one of those three things in any particular individual, but that hasn't worked. But it, you don't have to, you know, it may be the, the ethical, it may be the um, environmental, it may be the human health, mm. but it, i believe any one of those arguments is significant enough to, to go vegan
0: and it's a reason and, and any of those reasons is why anyone begins their journey to veganism so no i i'm i'm you know i i think you know a book like yours is, is certainly powerful and um it takes like i said you know if, if one person reads it and feels the impact and 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 makes a big change themselves that then impacts others around them it's it's achieving that purpose and this book is not as Arduous as say the China study, um, you can certainly read your book in, in, in much quicker time. Uh, you can digest things a lot easier. And what's important about your book that's really crucial is it's based here in New Zealand. So there's a lot of, you know, you can one can relate. So for our Kiwi listeners, this is a book one can relate to. Um, and not say, well, it's not, it's you know, it doesn't happen here in New Zealand. It's it's this is in America or this is in in Asia. You know, the China study or whatever the case is. So, I think books like yours are important. We need more like them. Uh, we need the same in Australia. Uh, we need local authors to to bring up the same general issues, but make them relatable to to the immediate audience.
2: Right.
0: Thank you. But I, it's I'd welcome as many as possible. Welcome. So what's life these days i see you you're pretty active in picton now for our listeners that are not in new zealand picton is uh basically when you when you're trying to hop from the north island to the south island uh one of the options is to take a ferry so from wellington which is the capital and uh the ferry takes you to a small town called picton which is a effectively the top of the south island and um when you've just said that you look out at the bush that's the sounds that uh one travels through to get into Picton. Uh, what's life like now? I see so you pretty active with potluck dinners, um, other sort of climate change groups and so on. Yes, I am. Pretty much I'm, a I'm, life of advocacy? Uh, yes,
2: yes, yes. Um, yeah, all of that. Um, we, we have regular potluck um, plant field dinners and, we, and I belong to a, a local climate change organisation. But most of my time I spend... Um, uh, dealing with predators in the bush around here, and um, and and we've got a, we've, we've we've I've, I've, I've and there's a there's a there's a reserve here called Kaipupu Point, and we've dealt with the predators on that to a large extent, and now we've got another group that I've initiated called Picton Dawn Chorus, and we we're aiming to trap something like four and a half thousand hectares around Picton in in around Picton. And I know there's a terrible um, confusion about killing some rats and not other animals, but um, I've thought about it long and hard, and I'm so desperately keen to see the, r- r- the local bird life regenerated, that I think it, the ends justified the means. But that's So I'm very active, I'm nearly 80, and I'm doing my trap lines every week and, and put as anything.
0: Wow, the amazing power of plants to keep you in the bush at the age of eighty. That certainly wouldn't have uh, wouldn't be the case if you continued with your your um, your old lifestyle. I would say. not at all.
2: I doubt if I. I'm pretty certain I wouldn't have been here, but I certainly wouldn't have the, the energy I've got now. Which was an early an early affirmation by someone I read way back that if you eat veggies all the time, it increases your metabolism, and if you don't walk more and be more active, you just Eat your, hit your body up more. It, you can't still the food is fat, and I don't know how much of that's true, but it's certainly that has the effect. It has that effect on me.
1: I think a lot of the um, benefits from eating a whole food plant based diet, as far as weight management goes, is just the low calorie density of the meals. So you can sit down, you can have a huge big massive meal and eat till your heart's content but because all of those veggies have hardly any you know calories in them per 100 grams compared to your meat and dairy um you're sitting pretty basically
2: yeah i think that's right i think that's absolutely right um there's an interesting comment here it's got nothing to do with the subject but i'll tell you anyway (laughs) that it's um that in the early days i read somewhere that it was worthwhile eating salt while while you're eating this plant based diet, because salt is a good um, um, food, food um, you know, it, it adds, it makes you want to eat more. more. And so I used to eat a lot of salt with my food. And I've actually advocated that to others to start up, because if, they, if they're going to go hungry, that's pointless. So it's better to eat salt and fill yourself up with the veggies. But subsequently, in more recent times, I've discovered that that eating salt's very bad for me, and I've given up in the last—I mean, last couple of months—I've given up, and the effect of giving it up has dropped my blood pressure by more than I could have ever achieved by taking pills.
1: Oh, brilliant! yep. So
2: that, so that, that was that. I was I was the author of my own demise as far as blood pressure goes, but now I'm the author of improving it. So.
1: Well, I mean, there is a lot of misinformation out there on, on the internet. So um, I've definitely heard people advocate for high salt diets before. I've even way back when, before I studied dietetics, um, I went to a naturopath who told me to basically make my food white with salt. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a common misconception.
2: Right. Well, personally, I've proved it conclusively because my, my blood pressure crashed after I gave up. And it, once again, giving up salt wasn't that hard. Having having given up cigarettes and given up meat and milk, giving up salt was a nothing.
0: <laughs> no, and and if and and you'd know, I mean, dairy or uh, well not dairy, but cheese, for instance, something I never knew as a as a past cheese lover myself, how much uh, salt is actually contained within cheese. And yes. um, uh, you know, and then obviously when we talk about processed foods, salt salt is is prevalent, uh, and yeah, it's it's one of the the issues in, in a typical Western diet, you know, along with the sugars and, 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 and the processed fats, uh the ores. I mean the three addictive taste buds. Um the ones the things that make you want to have more sweet salt and, and fat. So yeah, I think um, you know, we can always argue whether we should have no salt at all or a little bit of salt, but certainly not the other end of the spectrum, which uh would, would certainly cause some some health complications there. So luckily you've you've averted that early on. Um but yeah, James, it's it's uh, you know it's really fascinating to to speak to someone like yourself that that's come from from such a you know I say a hardcore background you know a farmer, a kiwi farmer that all you know is meat and dairy you know that's that's what your your, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner revolves around. It's what it's what you you produce for the, for the country. Like you say, it's a patriotic duty um, to. You know, it's not nice to say, but to have gone through health scares to then pop out the other end and live such a fulfilling life like you do. You know, at the age of 80, you're, you're sort of contributing to, to your local environment, trying to, you know, bring back more, uh, you know, local indigenous species, you know, bird life, which New Zealand has previously been well known for. Still is, but, you know, we we, we want more of the bird life back. Um, and, and being such an active... Uh, advocate for for living ethically living healthily um thank you so much it's it's been really it's been really nice to have your story shared shared with us and and our listeners It's
2: been a great pleasure thank you very much i love talking about it
0: and again to our listeners i i can only highly recommend this book it's uh it's it's you know it's a good read uh plant paradigm uh we'll again put the link at the website make sure you grab yourself a copy And uh, again, thank you so much, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.